First, I'd like to introduce the Family Strong Foundation. They are the organization that has been hosting these calls since March 25th, along with their sponsors, St. Landry Evangelist United Way. Their financial sponsorships make these calls possible throughout 2020. We'd also like to thank United Healthcare Community Plan, and especially Ms. Deborah Jones, for their commitment to the Family Strong Foundation. Today we've got an exciting guest speaker, Ms. Christy Green from the League of Women Voters of Lafayette. She's going to talk about something that you may or may not have known. I don't want to talk about it, but just once you know about it, I think that you it's quite unsettling. So I'm excited to have her on the call today. As always, please hold all questions until the end. So we ask you to grab a paper and pencil, especially today, because you're going to want to take notes about what Christy has to say. So please hold all your questions till the end. That way Christy can convey all the information that she needs so we can also get our questions and comments answered. Our guest speaker is Ms. M. Christine Green but she goes by Christy. She's a scholar, a teacher, a researcher, a writer, working in the fields of law, religion, ethics, human rights, and world affairs. She holds a degree from Georgetown University in history and government, from Emory University in law and theology, and from the University of Chicago in religion and ethics. She has taught at DePaul University, Harvard Divinity School, and the Chandler School of Theology. She has been a researcher at the Religion, Culture, and Family Project at the University of Chicago, the Park Ridge Center for Study of Health, Faith, and Ethics in Chicago, and the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. She is currently an editor and Senior Fellow at the Center for Study of Law and Religion at Emory University, an editor of the Journal of Law and Religion, an editor and publication manager for the African Consortium for Law and Religion Studies. And she is a member of the League of Women Voters of last year. I am honored to present somebody with such a stellar uh, resume. I, I must say I read a lot of resumes, but the the, the universities in this resume is, is really going to speak to the authenticity of this speaker. Ms. Green, uh, Christy, you're on mute right now, so you'll need to dial star six to unmute yourself and then make sure that you're also not on mute on yourself. I think I've unmuted myself. Can you hear me? We can. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Well, let me start off by saying that in addition to that wonderful biography that Dr. Brooks read, I can tell you that I am also on the state board for the League of Women Voters of Louisiana as well as the Lafayette chapter. Uh, and as of last night, I'm the interim vice president of the League of Women Voters of Louisiana. So uh, it's been a very busy year for us at the League, 
And for those of you who don't know what the League of Women Voters is, uh, it is a 100-year-old organization. This is our 100th anniversary year. It was founded in 1920, the same year that women got the right to vote. And it exists to promote voter rights, voting education. Uh, many people know the League through its voter guides that it produces before every election, where all of the candidates' biographies are listed and other information about how to vote and vote effectively. Uh, so that's how most people know us. And in fact, the Lafayette chapter of the League has a very new voter guide platform this year. It's called the Vote 411 platform. So if you go to the League of Women Voters of Lafayette on Facebook or on our website, you'll get to that, and you can get all the, the voter information that you need. Uh, and I would be remiss if I did not start off the presentation by reminding everyone that we do have runoff elections coming up on December 5th. So we have just been through and kind of are still going through uh, a presidential election, but we have uh, another round of election electing to do on December 5th. So I'll definitely want to make sure to uh, let you have some tips for how to do that uh, effectively, especially in this terrible pandemic time that we're in. Um, but I want to start off first by talking about some of the laws that have to do with voter rights. Uh, Dr. Brooks was on another presentation with the black students and faculty and staff of uh, the University of Louisiana at Lafayette where we talked about some of this stuff. And there have been further developments since then. So some of this will be new even to Dr. Brooks. But I wanted to uh, mention, it, it had just been brought back to my mind very recently, that actually in the, the base part of our Constitution, the first seven articles, the original Constitution, there's really no reference to voting rights per se. Uh, there are portions that discuss elections, Article 2, Section 1 talks about the Electoral College, which we're hearing a lot about today. Uh, Article 4, Section 4 is called the Elections Clause. It talks about federal elections and when they have to happen and how they have to happen. But there's not reference to voting rights uh, per se. Uh, those were, would be written into the Bill of Rights through various amendments to the Constitution. So many of you probably know that the 14th Amendment uh, was the one that guaranteed rights, voting rights to 21-year-old males so long as they had not committed acts of rebellion or crime. Uh, and then the 15th Amendment, very important, said that there could be no denial of the right to vote on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were part of these, this set of post-Civil War amendments uh, that really granted very important rights, particularly to African Americans who had been previously enslaved. So a very important part of our constitutional history. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, in, in 1920, we had the 19th Amendment, which gave uh, women the right to vote. It said there could be no denial of vote on account of sex. So we're celebrating that 100-year anniversary this year. Uh, the 24th Amendment is one that I hadn't thought of much until recently, and I can say some more about that later. But the 24th Amendment prohibits poll taxes. Well, what's that? Um, that's having to pay anything uh, in order to vote. Uh, and we actually had this come up just this summer in Louisiana when there was a proposed emergency voting plan that would have required people 
if they wanted to get an excuse to have a mail-in ballot for COVID, it would have required them to get a COVID test and also get certification from a doctor or medical professional that they were affected by COVID. So this poor, this version of the emergency voting plan was not uh, passed. In fact, it was uh, overridden by a court decision. But many of us thought, wait, having to uh, pay possibly to get a COVID test and pay to go to a doctor's visit, that's something you have to pay in order to be able to vote. So the 24th Amendment sounds like something remote and abstract, but we actually had to think about that in Louisiana this summer for uh, a brief period. And then finally, the last constitutional amendment on voting rights is the 26th Amendment, and that's the one that gave 18-year-olds the right to vote. Uh, and it's not well known. In fact, I didn't know it until I joined the league and did voter registration drives. But you can register to vote uh, at age 17. Uh, the voting card will then be sent to you on your birthday when you turn 18. But this is very important for us when we do voter registration drives in the high schools. We like to get people as early as we can. So getting those seniors when they're 17 before they turn 18, that's been uh, a big project uh, for us. But let me move on from the Constitution to another piece of legislation, congressional legislation, that uh, is also very important and something we're thinking a lot about these days. And that, of course, is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, I was refreshing my memory on the act and what it contains and what it means. And I read that it was amended five times since 1965 to expand protection. So what does that mean? Well, to me, that means this is a very important law if they added to it three times to improve and expand the law. Uh, it's clear that the Voting Rights Act is a, a very important part of our national legislation. And the, the Voting Rights Act was really meant to enforce voting, the voting rights guarantees of the 14th and 15th Amendments. Yes, those were passed back in the 1860s, uh, but as we all know, uh, there was considerable difficulty, particularly for African-American voters uh, for a century after that. So that's why we have the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to give authority to reinforce the 14th and 15th Amendments. And so what is the, what is the purpose of the Voting Rights Act? To prevent racial discrimination in voting. And it is widely credited with securing the right for racial minorities to vote, especially in the South. Uh, and there are two parts of the Voting Rights Act that I want to mention because they are also uh, under considerable discussion today, uh, particularly in connection with a very important Supreme Court decision. And those are Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits state and local governments from imposing any voting law that results in discrimination against racial or language minorities. I'll repeat it again. It, prevent, it prohibits state and local governments from imposing any voting law that results in discrimination against racial or language minorities. So that's section two of the Voting Rights Act, and we'll talk about more about why that's important in a minute. But section five also provides special provisions for certain jurisdictions requiring them to get preclearance in order to implement any change affecting voting rights. They have to 
go before the United States Attorney General and in some cases before the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, which is one of our highest federal courts, and explain why this law is necessary and account, say that it will account for how it will not discriminate against protected classes. So this Section 5 preclearance requirement, as it's called, uh, is supposed to apply to jurisdictions that are covered by what is called a coverage formula. Uh, back in 1965, Congress did some studies. They looked around. They found out that uh, voting rights discrimination against minority voters was happening in some places more than the others, uh, basically most of the southern states and certain counties in, in certain other states. And so all of these areas of the country were put in what was called a coverage formula in Section 4B of the law. So any part of the country under the coverage formula in Section 4B would have to get preclearance for any law that it might make affecting voting under Section 5. Well, why is this important? Um, in 2013, the United States Supreme Court handed down a decision that some of you may have heard about, Shelby County versus Holder. This uh, was Shelby County in Alabama. Uh, and what the decision did was it struck down the Section 4B coverage formula as unconstitutional because, the court said, it was no longer responsive to current conditions. Basically, the court said, uh, hey, it's 2013. We've, had, you know, we've advanced as a country. We have had our first American, African-American president in 2008. We don't need these preclearance requirements in these particular areas anymore. So it struck down the, the coverage formula. Now, it didn't actually completely strike down the idea of preclearance, that there might need to be some permission to make changes in voting law, but it removed these states and large counties that were required to get preclearance. So basically, the law, the, it has, the, there is no preclearance requirement anymore. This is why the Shelby County decision is said to have gutted voting rights in this country. Uh, and it is important to know that uh, there have, as I said, there have been many studies that went into creating these coverage areas and requiring certain places to get preclearance, but it was also determined that preclearance, making states account for their voting law changes, led to increases in minority turnout. So what do we do now that we no longer have this uh, preclearance requirement? There are a number of things that we're looking at, and I'll talk about how I've been doing some of this uh, in investigating for the League of Women Voters. But one of the things that we know is that within five years after the 2013 ruling in Shelby, 1,000 polling places were closed in the United States, and many of these were in predominantly African-American areas. And let me tell you as well that we know from a study that was released just last year by an organization called the Leadership Conference Education Fund in a report that you can find online called Democracy Diverted, uh, we know that closure of polling places has been a particular problem in Louisiana. Uh, in fact, Louisiana was one of seven states that were focused on in that report. And the report noted that two-thirds of Louisiana parishes have closed polls 
since the Shelby decision, leaving us with 126 fewer polling places than we had in 2013. So this has affected big parishes, particularly like Jefferson, Orleans, East Baton Rouge, but uh, closer to home for many of us, Lafayette actually had the second highest percentage, percentage-wise, of polls uh, closed. It was just after Wynn Parish, uh, up in the north, which was top, but Lafayette Parish actually had, by percentage, more parent polling places closed than Jefferson, uh, Orleans, and, and East Baton Rouge, the biggies. So that's a real strong concern for those of us in, in the Lafayette area. Um, and another thing that the D Democracy Diverted Report showed was that there was a trend that began after Hurricane Katrina that may have become permanent. And that is a trend toward uh, identifying temporary closure of polls after a disaster, such as a hurricane, uh, but then they never get opened up again. So we know that after Hurricane Katrina, many people left the New Orleans area uh, it could be argued that they did not need as many polls in the uh, polling places in the uh, years initially following Hurricane Katrina. But the problem was that many of those never came back. So uh, New Orleans, the New Orleans area still has fewer polls than it had before Katrina. Now, this, of course, is another one of those things that happened in 2005, but is back with us again. We have had very serious hurricanes in Louisiana this year. Um, one of our big concerns with the league and, and other voting organizations has been about the Lake Charles area, and particularly after Hurricane Laura. Uh, but there were also some problems uh, which we think were, were rectified and, and uh, everything finally worked out in the end in New Orleans this year after Hurricane Zeta. There were a number of polling places that had no electricity, so there was a, a scramble uh, through the Secretary of State's office, through the Governor's office, to get backup generators to power some of these polls. Uh, but one of the things that we are hearing from Lake Charles is that there was a lot of consolidation. Many of the polls uh, that polling, in, uh, local neighborhood polling places were merged into the convention center at Lake Charles. And there were, in general, positive reports uh, for voting at the, at the convention center, but there are concerns that you know these polling places that existed that were in neighborhoods and suburbs that were convenient for people, we hope these will eventually be brought back. So this is something that we're going to be looking at. So the, the polling places and closure of polling places is one thing that we look at after the Shelby decision. Uh, another thing that we look at are cuts to early voting periods. Uh, and some of you may know that we had a very long uh, early voting period in this November election. Uh, this was actually the result of an early vote, emergency voting plan that was passed uh, in the spring. Uh, and I sat in on the very interesting testimony uh, about that emergency voting plan uh, as it was being enacted in the House and Senate of the Louisiana legislature, but it did give us uh, 10, or, uh, 10 early voting days in the end for the main election, and then we have uh, several early voting days coming up for the December 5th election. So this is all expanded. And as some of you in Lafayette know, uh, we were also, in addition to having a longer period of early voting in Lafayette, we actually got two new early voting polling locations. So the early voting had generally taken place 
uh, at the 1010 Lafayette building, Street building. That's the Registrar of Voters Office. But in addition to that, uh, for the November 3rd election and for the November 5th election, we have uh, additional early voting locations at the East Regional Library, which is uh, primarily serves Broussard and Youngsville, uh, but also the, the most recent addition, the Martin Luther King Jr. Recreational Center on the north side, which is where I was very happy to vote and had a very good voting experience uh, on November 3rd. So we're really fortunate. I think that the two early voting places that we got in Lafayette Parish were uh, two of only four uh, early voting places that were established in the state this year. There was a new vo early voting location in DeSoto Parish, and the Smoothie Center in New Orleans also operated uh, a large early voting location that went very well. Uh, so early voting uh, is a concern. And of course, in the pandemic context, uh, we have urged people, if they're eligible, we can talk about this later, to vote by mail in the first instance, if they can. Uh, if they can't do that, early voting, also very good. Uh, and if you need to, you can wait until the actual election day, which will be December 5th. But the reason why mail-in voting and early voting are so important this year is that we want to alleviate crowding at the polling places. So having that voting spaced out uh, over many days and over several locations uh, is very helpful in achieving that aim. Um, so we've talked about the polling places. We've talked about early voting. Uh, another thing that we're looking at very intensively after Shelby uh, is purging of voter rolls. Uh, and this is uh, something that I'll say a little bit more about in just a minute, but it has been happening quite a bit, we fear, in Louisiana, and we are, are examining that through the league with other organizations. More on that in just a minute. But finally, in addition to polling places, early voting, and purges, uh, another post-Shelby development that is of concern are stricter voter ID laws. And I don't think we had this in Louisiana. I think there were attempts to do it in Texas, uh, but, but stricter requirements about what counts as an ID, uh, how, what kinds of ID you have to have. Uh, I can tell you that in 2008, I was living in the state of Georgia and had just moved back to the state of Georgia in 2007 and had registered to vote pretty quickly when I got back. But somehow, because I go by my first initial, they had me on the voting rolls as M. Green. So I showed up to vote in the presidential primary, and they said, oh, we don't know who you are. So I had to go back to my apartment, and I ended up bringing five forms of ID with me to prove who I was. I had picture ID. I think I had my birth certificate. I had my lease to show where I lived. Uh, so that is the, the kind of thing that we have seen in other places. I don't think we've seen that in, in Louisiana. But uh, I want to move back into the purging issue, but I want to do it by mentioning one final kind of most recent uh, voting, national, federal voting uh, legislation. That's the National Voter Registration Act of 1993. Uh, well, what was that? Well, this was an act that aimed to increase the number of voters, to enhance voter participation uh, and to, to promote uh, election integrity to make sure we know who's registered and they're properly registered, and also to ensure an accurate voter role. So some of you uh, may know this as the motor voter law. That was what uh, it, it was called because uh, one of the things that it did was uh, 
require them to offer you the opportunity to register to vote when you get your driver's license, and in some cases when you're applying for various forms of public assistance. Uh, but in addition to getting people registered, the National Voter Registration Act also has a, a particular provision about how you can basically become unregistered. Uh, namely, the voter National Voter Registration Act prohibits states from removing registered voters from voter rolls unless some criteria are met. Well, let me talk about voter purging a little more. And Dr. Brooks has heard me mention some of this before because it's been a long-standing concern we've had at the League of Women Voters. Uh, we have been involved with several national organizations in a study of voter purging and have submitted uh, a re public request, public records request, uh, to the Secretary of State and uh, certain registrars of voters in various parishes to get information on how they are maintaining these lists as they describe it. Uh, and so we've requested information going all the way back to before uh, the Shelby decision to see uh, if basically if there have been any changes and if uh, certain criteria are being met. So the issue with voter purging is that addresses that can't be verified by the registrar of voters during what they call their annual canvas, uh, and this is normally where they send you a postcard and you're supposed to return the postcard to confirm that you live at that address. Well, if they send send one of these postcards and you don't respond to it, they will note that they have not been able to reach you at that address. Uh, then, if you have not confer confirmed your address with them, perhaps because you've moved, you may have changed addresses, and this is actually the most common way that uh, people have this problem. If you don't confirm your address with the registrar when they request it, and you don't vote in any election between the day you were added to the inactive voters list and two federal elections after that date, then you can be removed. Okay, that's complicated. Let's, let's talk more about uh, what's happening here. Okay, so you may have an address that has not been confirmed with the registrar of voters, perhaps because you've moved. Actually, your name may change too. This is another issue. People get married, they get divorced, the name that the Registrar of Voters has on file um, may not be the name that you're using now. Well, what happens is there is something called an inactive voters list, and these are regularly published in one newspaper in every parish, and I've checked, there's actually a newspaper in every parish that publishes this, uh, and they are typically published about a month after the election. So for example, in July this summer, July 11th, we had the presidential party primary. Well, on July 30th, all over the state, and I have the one uh, from the Daily Advertiser in Lafayette sitting right here, um, they published a list of inactive voters. There was another that was published back in December uh, of 2019 after this, the November state election. So what this means is once you are on that list, if you do not vote in any election between now and the time that two federal elections have happened, they can remove you. So let's say someone was put on the inactive voters list in 2015 or early 2016, and they didn't know it, and they didn't vote in the November and the September, uh, I mean the, the 2018 congressional election, and they didn't vote in. Uh, 
the uh, sorry, it's, if it's 2015 and they're on the list, they don't vote in the 2016 presidential election. They don't vote in the 2018 midterm, congressional midterm election. They have missed two federal elections, and they can be removed the day after that second federal election. So we have just had a federal election uh, on November 3rd. And we're concerned that there may be people who didn't vote in November. Maybe they didn't vote in those 2018 congressional elections. And so on December 6th, they can be removed, can be. We don't, again, we don't know that this is done in every case. We don't know if some people are removed and others are not. But they can be removed on December 6th. And we say December 6th because we're assuming that December 5th counts as a federal election because in some parts of the state, for example, the 5th District up on the northeastern side uh, where they had an open congressional seat and are having a runoff, that December 5th may count uh, as a federal election too. So that is very complex. The point of this, what we can do as voters, is to always be aware of our uh, voter status. The best way to do that is to go to the Go Vote app. If you download that onto your phone, that's G-E-A-U-X, our little Cajunism, uh, Go Vote, and you download it. You, in, you enter your name. You enter your address. Uh, if there's more than one person at your address, for example, I'm currently living with my uh, mother who uh, needs someone to live with her because of health conditions, uh, we have the same name. So you will be asked to enter your birthday. So it will distinguish who you are, and you can get all sorts of information. It will say whether you are active or inactive. There's a place to go where you can see what will be on your uh, upcoming ballot. So actually, Louisiana often isn't the most progressive state in some things, but in terms of this app to find out your voter registration status, it is actually very good, and I encourage everyone to do it, and I encourage everyone to check their registration status before any election, uh, and of course to vote in as many elections as you can. So that's the inactive voters list, and I will just say that there is, as I say, a, a group of people who are studying this. There's a national coalition of organizations. We're going to be looking very carefully uh, at what happens uh, with the, the voter list maintenance after this election. I can tell you that Louisiana does, it, does uh, maintain or purge its list regularly. Uh, for example, in 2013, there, after that purging, after the 2012 election, uh, it was reported in the Advocate newspaper that more Democrats than Republicans and more women than men were purged. So there are statistics on this, and we are, are studying this right now, and we'll be uh, raising this with the appropriate uh, elected officials uh, and, and possibly through litigation if that's necessary. Um, I've said quite a bit about the emergency election plan uh, and, and its litigation uh, earlier. We did have the, the plan in, in April that uh, proposed in April was adopted for the July and August elections and is applying now for the November and 27th elections. The, as you may know, the emergency elections plans expanded vote by mail, um, mostly by creating, in addition to the existing categories of people who are eligible to vote by mail, 
people over 65, people who are disabled and registered as participating in disabled programs, um, military serving abroad, uh, a few other categories for people who may not be residing here. They may be away at college uh, or maybe in, in some sort of institution. They may be uh, in a rehabilitation institution after surgery. They may be hospitalized uh, on a particular voting day. But in addition to those, there were some categories created this year for people uh, who uh, are, felt that they were affected by the COVID infection uh, or were caring for people who had uh, or, or were at high risk of getting the COVID infection. Uh, we can say a bit more about those later. They are technically still in effect for anyone who feels that they might be affected by COVID for the December 5th election. Uh, but it did create this extra category of vote by mail. It did also, as I say, expand early voting uh, by several days, so that was good. Uh, and it also required uh, various safety measures at the polls themselves, so uh, presence of PPE, uh, masks. Uh, some of you may have gotten those little finger rubber finger covers uh, to push the election uh, buttons. Uh, so all of that was part of uh, ensuring a safe election under the emergency election plan. Uh, and I can tell you that how effectively those provision, those uh, safe election procedures were implemented was part of another activity that I was involved in during this election season, both in July during the summer elections uh, and then again in November, which was remote poll monitoring. Um, some of you may know that technically, the only people allowed around election uh, polling places on election day are the poll workers, the voters, certain poll watchers. If you are a political candidate, you can uh, register to get watchers to uh, sit in the polling places, watch the polling places, make sure the polling places are safe. Um, but I was working actually for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, which has a poll monitoring program. Now, under COVID, we were not going in anywhere near the polling places. We were pulling up in our cars and taking pictures and observing conditions and making reports. And we were reporting on things, for example, like the uh, compliance with the, the Americans with Disabilities Act. There was a whole series of questions that we had to answer about whether the polling place was accessible. Did it have a ramp? Was the uh, door handle uh, easily uh, open? You know, Able, able to be open easily, uh, was there adequate handicap parking, and was it clearly marked, the whole series of cases on that. Um, there were also, we were also instructed to look and see if voters appeared to be wearing masks, were they entering and exiting the polling places with masks, uh, did we see polling workers sometimes out on a break, and actually in July, uh, they, many of the polling workers were wearing those full hospital gowns. So in some cases, we observed them uh, taking a break outside the polling place, and they were gowned and masked. And that was a good thing because it suggested that they had the, the materials that they needed to keep them safe. Uh, and of course, with remote, remote poll monitoring, uh, we took special care to make sure that uh, minority voting areas uh, were um, proceeding in an especially orderly fashion. Uh, for example, in July, I was given a list of polls to monitor in the Lafayette area. This was uh, the, all, most of our north side polls. We wanted to make sure that things were okay. 
especially given certain threats that we'd heard about possible intimidation. Uh, on, on my list, I had some more remote polling places, including some of our outlying parishes. I think I had one in uh, St. Martin Parish, one in Acadia. But actually, for the November election, uh, I decided that I wanted to do remote, remote poll monitoring in St. Landry Parish, uh, because we had heard that there was uh, less early voting there, and so I wanted to see that polling places were proceeding well on election day. Uh, and so I drove the entire parish all the way to the east uh, and Crock Springs and north and down to Eunice and Opelousas, and things seemed to be going very well. I can tell you that we did have one incident in Louisiana that was reported through our poll monitoring, monitoring program in Baker, Louisiana, where apparently a man had contacted the police several weeks before the election uh, and told them that he was a Trump supporter and would be demonstrating that support at polling places by bringing a Trump flag and carrying an, or, an automatic weapon. And so this man did, in fact, show up at a poll. Uh, the police uh, intercepted him, uh, actually forced him to stand 600 feet away from the poll, which is also the, the limit for uh, election signs, you may know, uh, to prevent electioneering and undue influencing of people's votes. So the, the police managed to keep him away, but this did actually make national news. So this voter intimidation thing is, is something that is, is actually real. Um, I want to kind of get, skip to a conclusion here by saying that some of our ongoing uh, initiatives at the league have to do, as I say, with monitoring this, voting, this voting purge thing. What's going to happen after the election? Uh, records requests. We are also very concerned that uh, as of uh, today, uh, our Secretary of State has still not responded to our request for records uh, that has now been outstanding for a year. And we feel that part of open and transparent government is having access to this information uh, about our, our voting procedures. And so we are cont continuing to pursue that. Uh, the election protection group that the NAACP and uh, legal, its legal defense fund organized uh, is going to continue. We'll be monitoring polls on December 5th. Uh, there is a very important phone number that I think everyone, every voter should know, and that is 866-HOUR-O-U-R-VOTE, 866-HOUR-VOTE. And this is the election protection hotline, which is run by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and it has highly trained election lawyers uh, who can provide assistance for any difficulties that anyone encounters with voting, whether it's uh, vote by mail or uh, usually election day, if, if you were uh, being told that you cannot vote or have any problems with voting, that number is, is there to help you. And then finally, I want to just say that uh, there is redistricting. As some of you may know, we have also had a census in 2020. And as a result of that census, uh, depending on whether our population has shifted in the state, shifted in the state uh, we may have some reconfiguration of our congressional voting districts. Uh, some of you may know that after the 2010 election, Louisiana actually lost a congressional seat because we've had a loss of population. Uh, but as well, our state legislators in the House and Senate, the Government Affairs Committees, will be taking a look at current uh, voting district lines and perhaps redrawing them. And the concern here is that uh, we want these districts to be drawn in a fair way. Uh, there are problems, for example, when people of minority races 
are consolidated in one area that may create may create a very strong minority district, but it also keeps them consolidated in one area. There are also problems when districts like St. Landry Parish, for example, which is divided among three different congressional districts, when they're divided up. Uh, so we say that packing is when you put people of one race in a district. Cracking is when you break them up and divide them among districts to dilute their vote. Uh, and also any other um, any other drawings of the boundaries, and some of you are, may be familiar with how odd some of our, uh, our electoral districts look. Uh, sometimes we say the legislators are trying to pick their voters rather than voters picking the legislators. So they are trying to redraw the map to pick voters who will vote for them. So redistricting is going to be a big effort and really probably something for another phone call if you're ever interested. Uh, but at this point, I think I will stop and, and take any questions or comments that you might have. And Dr. Brooks, just take over. Thank you so much. That was so informative. And I do feel like we probably need to have some subsequent conversations about some of the, uh, like, like you said, about re redistricting. I'd also like to talk maybe more about the purge help folks, walk folks through setting up Go Vote. That was very affirming to hear you say that because I, I, I preach that all the time. But I think we might be best served by actually helping them, walking them through the steps on a call and showing them how to use the app. But that might be a conversation for another day. Thank you so much for joining us.